there's there's no you know, we could do whatever we want. Yeah. This is going to be the same episode. Well, so this is what I was thinking. Like so, you know, it actually scares me enormously because <laughs> because I cut I cut them up a little bit. Oh, and so I, I was like, oh, so now yeah, one's Charlie the and remix I... and the other one's not. Yeah. Well, you know what we basically do is just like, we let it go. It's a conversation. Yeah. Yesterday I sat with somebody, my buddy Howard Smiley, and he like, he's like a very nervous Floridian Jew that's like, you know, when he wanted something cut, he would just kind of do the like, hey, you know, you're, don't put this on record. And yeah. I look at him and I'm just like, schmuck, then don't say it, you know? But I've had a couple, I've had a couple. I actually had one where somebody called me after the fact and said, oh, no. I said something yeah. that um, turns out wasn't true. I had, oh. I had heard something and I said something about somebody else and it turns out it's not accurate. And I right. really, well, you, you know, know, ultimately the beauty of it is you can always just re-upload whatever it is and that's gonna you know what i mean exactly all right let's get into this come on i'm gonna talk about podcasts the etiquette we could talk about it though because that's kind of what's bringing us together here i gotta tell you i was sitting on the subway last year i had done a bunch of these episodes kind of like preview interviews yeah. with people when i was I, I just wanted to try it out and see if i could yeah, do it. yeah. I was sitting on the subway coming back out to brooklyn and the, you know the f train goes above ground i check yeah, my yeah. facebook and i see it's the week i'm about to launch my podcast uh, and i see that your first episode is up. And I was like, oh my God, is there, does the world care enough about all of these interviews to have two? Yes. You know, and hell yes. And the answer is definitely yes. Oh my God, yes. Well, and I also think that it's just like, you know, one of the reasons why Charlie and I started doing this was actually, funny enough, we're both basically bass players. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this in the first episode that we did. We can't work together. We live on separate coasts. We have all these friends that we have these conversations with that we're just like, screw it. Like, let's just record them. Yeah. And I think the bottom line is, you know, our thing is like, you know, just you're not, we won't promote anything. Yeah. This is just friends getting together. And the whole deal is like, it's just should just be like, you know, like this morning I sat with a guy and, you know, he expected like he had his assistant with him, his producer, and you know, and I was just like, "This, we're just gonna talk, man." Yeah. And he was like, "Really? You're not gonna ask me about these X, Y, Z?" I'm like, "We're just gonna talk. We might end up like literally talking about like football." Yeah. So. I mean, but and that's a cool thing too because it sort of reveals, and maybe that, I'm, I don't know. I know you and I have so much in common that we got uh, we got to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, it at yeah. least a little bit. But one thing is, I, we, I was thinking about it while you were on your way over today that uh you know i grew up not in new york and not in in la i grew up in madison wisconsin yeah and um but still had you know a lot of musicians and interesting people coming in and out of my life because my dad yeah. even though he was based there he traveled and and i just loved musicians i just yeah. wanted to hang out I, I think i probably got into music because i just wanted to be around more musicians yeah it's very similar for me i mean i grew up in philly yeah my father was still producing a lot of records, so, you know, basically the only time I saw my old man was on the weekends, and generally anybody he was producing would kind of come down from New York and hang out in our sort of suburban, yeah. you know, existence. So, you know, it's funny, I didn't even think that I wanted to be around musicians or that I was drawn to them. It's just kind of the only people I knew from my my parents' circle of friends outside of maybe some local folk. I mean, like, Astro Gilberto lived in our town. Mm. So even the local friends <laughs> were Astro Gilberto. Yeah. I mean, that was really random that she yeah. lived there. Um, but so you just thought everybody was I in just that was world. like, yeah, you just, you're in music, and 
that's, you know, you're just around. Like, I remember my first sort of, like, I guess, like, cognitive or just, like, actual, like, I'm aware of what's going on memories were hanging out with Art Neville from the Neville Brothers mm-hmm. and the Meters. And he was there on the weekends while my dad was making this Neville's record. And I was just like, you know what? This guy's really cool. Yeah. And, like... Kind of, he would watch me play piano a little and, like, mess around. I wasn't a musician yet. I was, yeah. like, nine. Yeah. And I just remember him being, like, you, sh- you should learn an instrument. Like, yeah. you have, like, you have an innate, like, ability and sense of, you know, time. And I was, like, oh, okay. I guess I'll do that, you know? So it was Art Neville that, that planted the seed, not your dad? No, my dad didn't. No. My dad was just, I think my dad's thing was just, like, we're all going to find what we want to do. I mean, I have, I have four brothers three of which, three of us went into music, yeah. but in very different ways. You know, um, one, my brother David works at Apple for iTunes, and he actually now runs music hmm. for iTunes, which, so I, hmm. I say now I figuratively and literally know Big Brother. Yeah, right, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you <laughs> tapped like, into the source. Um, and another brother became a recording engineer, and then the smart brother, who works in furniture. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. Because <laughs> that, that industry Jewish didn't that he change. Is. Yeah, yes. Right. So, I mean, we were surrounded by music, but I wasn't, I didn't really think of music as a, it just, we were surrounded by music. I didn't think of anything else. I always say, and I don't know how you feel, and I know, if, are you a sports guy at all? Not really at all. Okay, then this, and I always bring this analogy up, yeah. but I feel like I grew up in the dugout, mm-hmm. and it's just like, I just knew baseball players, yeah. you know what I mean? And I, that's what I grew up around, and yeah. there was really, my dad didn't have any friends that were like lawyers and doctors, right. so I, didn't have a thought to go into that kind yeah of thing. right but um but how about you man like you just i know your old man would constantly be he must the people must have been coming through and well yeah i think there were two things one um people would come through uh, town and look him up because he was one of the few people that they knew who were yeah. anywhere near that area absolutely in um and then his friends, local friends also, like he became very close with Clyde Stubblefield early on. Clyde settled oh, in Madison yeah, in the early right. 70s. You, you, didn't you study yeah. with Clyde? I did. I, I studied, stu- you, I mean, if you can call it studying. Wow. I, you well. know. But that was my first drum lesson was when I was five, five or six, this drum set showed up in our house and Ben called his buddy Clyde to come over and sit with me and play with me. And so yeah. and over the years, Clyde definitely sort of mentored me yeah. locally. I mean, there's some... You know, he he has a wow. Well, yeah, but I mean, for I mean, me, it was you know I didn't even just, understand. Just yeah, yeah. And he's such a character, and yeah. he, he's actually such a local character in Madison. Yeah. He had a weekly Monday night gig in Madison for yeah. years. It just ended a couple of years ago because of his finally his health, unfortunately, right. deteriorated. But um, through a lot of years, he uh, he had this Monday night gig. As a matter of fact, he had it for a long time in the same venue, and over the years the venue changed ownership and it was sort of like inheriting a tenant. You inherited Clyde <laughs> yeah. Monday. So yeah. it was a country and western bar at one point, but it was still Clyde on Monday nights. Yeah. You, you, got you can't Clyde. change that, it's like an institution. And he would, when I was just old enough, like in you know early years of high school, I could go down on a Monday night and sit in. Yeah. But you know, on the one hand, he did me this enormous honor and favor of being one of the few drummers he ever let sit in on that yeah, gig. Yeah. And on the other hand, he, it, that meant he would split. Yeah. And he would be out behind the, you know, yeah. he'd be out hanging and yeah. then come back 45. So it's like, it wasn't like a tune, you know, a lot <laughs> no. of times you get to go it sit in like, hey, a set, like I do a set <laughs> and then and he could like stroll, you know. Uh, so on the one hand, there was like a hang and a scene and a community in, yeah. in Madison. But then on the other hand, I think, you know, my dad spent like 
over 50% of the time, like your dad, yeah, away from away. home. Yeah. So, and I would think especially more from being there because he yeah. would be in LA or New York or Detroit, whatever it was, Chicago, I'm sure he's... Yeah. Well, it was a pl- generally a plane ride. You know, yeah, it was yeah. generally not like a commuter vibe. It was like, I'm going to get on a plane, I'm going to go to New York, now I'm going to go to D.C., I'm going right. to go to L.A. But it did mean that when I traveled, I, I got to be sort of thrown into the, into the, um, the thick of it with him. Because if I wanted to go anywhere he was going to be, it was inevitably... So you were on the road. So I spent a lot of time on yeah. the road. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And I felt like I had a kind of a dual identity. I felt like there was a part of me that was very much connected to the Midwest and this kind of, you know... All American life. You know, Madison's a little bit of an unusual place. It's a university, and yeah, it's a progressive city, but but still a pretty kind of normal, nice upbringing. And then the other side of it was these kind of freaks. But I, in a way, mm. it sounds you know freaks in the sense of what, the way yeah. musicians can be. Yeah, no, no. You know, it's interesting. We never traveled because my father only produced records. Yeah. Your father, you know, obviously yeah. does a bunch of other stuff. But interesting. Um. So basically, I would either. If I came up to New York from Philly, it would be to go to Atlantic Studios or sometimes the Hit Factory, um, and we just would visit studios. So I grew up in studios. Yeah. And then every once in a while, an act that he was working with would, would be somewhere and we might go. See like, him. But that was really infrequent. Like, I remember the first concert I ever remember going to, funny enough, we were talking about Janice Siegel just before yeah. we started talking. I saw the transfer play at uh, the Valley Forge Music Fair. Do you know that venue? No. It's one of those weird, like, in-the-round venues, you know, so the, the stage would slowly rotate. So, like, everyone... I couldn't imagine doing a gig like that. Yeah. I would be, like, not disoriented, but it's just weird, but... Well, at any given time, you have your back to... Uh, well, yeah, you're audience. just like, you know, oh, yeah, here comes the broad with the blue hair yeah. again. You know, like, yep. you slowly go around. But... I'll never forget. Actually, it's funny. We didn't see a lot of live music, but I did hear Alex Blake play, mm-hmm. and that actually kind of cemented me wanting to like think about playing bass mm-hmm. because I don't know if you you know Alex. Sure. Blake, yeah. Absolutely. He took a solo and he did a a medley of Beatles tunes, and it was just, it was ridiculous. Re- I mean, to this day, I'm surprised people don't talk about like yeah. his level of playing more. Yeah. Like, incredible. But yeah, we were just. I think you spent a lot more time seeing shows. And your father performed a, a yeah. ton, no? I mean, like, would you... That's true. Yeah, he definitely did. That That's a good distinction. It's funny, I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I suppose I probably did. But, interestingly, I don't see myself as much as a performer. Right. I, I ended up more kind of twiddling knobs in the same yeah. way. But, um, I think everyone in our generation ended up twiddling knobs more, and that's a real byproduct of a, of a part of our thing just yep. sort of not I don't want to say collapsing it's just the technology enabled everyone to just say hey you know what I, look I'm staring at a studio right now exactly you know um, but yeah you know what's funny though like the last person on earth that knew anything about twiddling knobs or by the way finding where one is yeah. in a measure was my old man really knew nothing about the gear if I if I would sit down with him and be like hey what compression did you use on your yeah. Not a clue. But I, you know, I've been asking some people about this, about yeah. the, the, you know, I think if you ask, sort of like the joke about asking, you know, 10 Jews about something, you get 10, 12 opinions. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> if you ask 10 producers what a producer does, you would get oh, 12, 12, 15 answers. And especially from guys, you know, from our old man's generation, yeah. you know, his thing was, and, and, and uh, you know, in a way, it's funny, I was kind of resentful of this as a kid, and it'll make sense why I'm saying this in a second. He seemed to only work with troubled 
brilliant, mm. like the kind of artists that make you, I think they kind of took years off his life. Like, you know, and, and I'm very, very, very comfortable going on record as saying like Roberta Flack doing seven records with her, that's a PTSD situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an artist that would, you know, you know, ask for a plane to be waiting outside of Carnegie Hall. Like, not like serious dissonance, serious, you know, and challenging and, and brilliant, you know. And he tended, he had a tendency to work with these, I mean, and, and one could say a lot of these artists are kind of challenging and they would, you know, but I think some more than others. And he yeah. had like eight in a row. You know, her being probably the, you know, the two of them, were, they, they won a bunch of Grammys, they sold millions of records, but like Donny Hathaway, very challenging. So when you produce Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack at the same yeah. time, I just think that he came from the production school of like, hey, you know what? You know, figuratively, like putting his arm around the artist and say, we're going to make it through this record. Yeah. Like, I know you have a lot going on. Like, he, he, he did a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the, two in the morning, three in the morning, crazy phone calls yeah. kind of producing. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I don't, you know, you and I, we produce and it's just like, well, I programmed the drums, I did the synths, I, I played piano and then I emailed something to someone. Yes. You know, that's, it's, I'm trying to remember, I sat with someone on one of my yeah. podcasts with Stuart Levine, you know yeah. the producer sure, Stuart course, Levine? Yeah. And he just was like, you know, it's not, that's not producing. And I'm like, come on, man, it's producing. You know. Well, maybe the distinction is it's not producing an artist so much yeah. as it is producing a track. You know, yeah. and I think we're very focused on our. You know, we haven't really talked about it, but I think yeah. our skill sets to a certain degree are compatible in that they're much more oriented towards getting the track done. Yeah, and being doing interesting work within that context as opposed to, you know, who's going to answer the phone at two in the morning when the person is. Yeah, for, that's a different kind of production. Yeah. But also the interesting thing is I think production and A and R were very connected. Very so, much so. Um, and when you talk about what your brother, you and your brothers did, it's sort of like each of you almost took, I mean, I'm sure there's an no, enormous amount of overlap, but took like a slice of the pie yeah. and kind of went with it. One yeah. is the actual record making, the other is the sort of like the real business side of sure, it. Sure, very much so. And yeah. the other is like maybe more of the kind of A&R side or something. something or, yeah, or yeah, or like, you know, literally the mixing and recording, right. like the right, technical right. aspects of it. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird. The, the thing, production has changed vastly. I mean, it's like, I think, you know, it's funny. They used to call it supervision. Yeah. You know, they literally would be someone making sure that, like, stuff didn't get broken. They wore lab coats, you know, like, they yeah. go, oh, you don't touch the knobs. There's only four of them, and you need to have, you need to be a member of the union. Have you ever worked at Capitol Studios in L.A.? No, I've only been as a witness. I've never right. worked there. It's a union house. Yeah. Did you know that? You can't yeah. actually touch things in there. I never knew that. Huh. I was like... Because I guess because they do all these award shows, and it's just always been a union place. So that cracks me up. Yeah. You know, like... Well, it's like those photos when you even see it at Abbey Road, the Beatles, or whatever, uh, and it's like... What? <laughs> yeah, you did these guys yeah, yeah. recording it? That's what they look like? Exactly. So, I mean, things have changed. I mean, yeah, for the purposes of our experience, yeah. being raised by producers and yeah. songwriters, obviously, and performers, like, my dad's thing of production was so much vastly different than what exists yeah. now. I mean, in a way, it's kind of a, you know, I love what I do, but I do miss the teamwork and, and the camaraderie of having like eight people be part of a process yeah. that's now just like sometimes just me, you know? 
Well, when I first became aware of the Motion Worker Project, mm. I think the first time I was aware of it was not uh, the records, but the band that you put together. Oh, really? You saw the Wow. I don't think I saw it, but I read about it, I heard about it, so yeah. they t told me about it. And then I went back and checked out the tracks and then heard them licensed all over the, you know, oh, yeah. stuff. But, um, but it seems like you kind of uh, made an effort at some point to like put something collaborative on in Yeah, I had to. And it was interesting because the way I started out making these records, it's funny, it was really on the heels of like, I was really a studio musician and I, I was producing records and I started sort of writing this music and I realized it was really based on DJ culture and I knew nothing about it. And I had some friends in that world that were like, you know, hey, you should put this stuff out. And I'm like, well, what do I do? Like, I wouldn't, they're like, you, you need to DJ. And I'm like, no, 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 you gotta be kidding me. Like, DJ? Like, I'm gonna play records, you know? So what have you started putting these tracks together, mixing up different genre bending stuff, or what were you doing? Well, honestly, I started out making like really aggressive drum and bass music. I got really into this stuff coming out of the UK, and I was just like so sick of making glossy pop records mm -hmm. that I was like, started making all, I was like, just, honestly to learn how to use the gear mm -hmm. I was like I have a bunch of synths I have some samplers and like this stuff pushes you to learn how to sort of break the stuff you know like and really learn how to program and <laughs> so then I realized like I'm like well I can't do it live and I have to DJ and I did it for a while and you know it's a square peg and round hole like yeah. literally I, I did a DJ I'll never forget this I did a DJ gig once on St. Mark's at this place called Coney Island High I don't mm -hmm. know if you ever remember this club and it was like jungle night and yeah. jungle this and you know guys with like stupid clothes and they dance yeah. and they get they're so into it and you know you know you're not meant for a world when i'm sitting there and i'm like djing and reading a book about cannibal right. like i'm really not feeling this and the tone arm comes off of the turntable because it's like a piece of crap turntable that's like been abused and everyone starts booing and the only thing I could think to say was, go home and read a book. <laughs> I'm like, you, you have to be kidding me. Like, this guy's like... So I wasn't really meant for that world. And, yeah. and, and, you know, so the band really is actually born out of, like, two and a half, three years of DJing against my will. Yeah. And then I was just like, listen, if I'm going to make this stuff and it's going to be funky and it's going to be, like, it's all sort of microscopic sample-based and beat, beat, breakbeat stuff, but, like, I have great friends that are musicians that will kill this but they'll play this so much better live so that's what that was born out of yeah but it's funny charlie and i always we shared a lot of musicians you know charlie hunter and i shared a bunch of musicians and it was like as much fun as it was to have a band it is just mind-numbingly expensive yeah. to, to take i had like cool in the gang on the road yeah. i had like eight like I, I think i went out with eight people yeah that's just like boy you better sell you have to you, be nice yeah. you know you have to be crazy and i've seen yeah I mean, Charlie, I know over the years has gone from like the, you know, taking a bunch of people out to yeah. just like, but he's fortunate that he can go with two people too. You know, he can oh, go with yeah. a drummer and it's He killing. and Scott are just, it's the, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's affordable. I mean, you can, yeah. you can tra afford to travel at, at Absolutely. that scale. And they're like best friends. Yeah. So it's like they go out on the road, they do a bunch of great gigs. They talk to each other while they're playing. Yeah. Not just musically. They literally talk to each other. It's amazing. Wow. But yeah, it's, it's. It's hard, you know, it's hard to take a band out, but honestly, for the way I'm making records now, I, I kind of have to. Yeah. Like, if I'm going to tour, you know, it's, why would you not want to have, like, yeah. a great hang? You know what I mean? But that's what, that's, you know, and this goes back to, you, yeah. you were saying, you sort of miss the camaraderie. And, yeah. and, that, and I think that speaks also to the fact that when you're, we spend a lot of time locked in a room alone. Yeah. And 
when I started doing, like, for example, advertising or certain even pop production, or, you know, I would say, this is great. I'm, like, one of the few people that actually gets to go off and do my own thing, and yeah. nobody's looking over my shoulder. No. Especially if you, there's a client situation, it's like... Well, advertising, don't yeah. get me started. That's, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I've done, we've both yeah. done a ton of that, and it's just that talk about looking, looking over your shoulder and telling you what they don't want and want at the same time and not knowing really anything about either. Yeah. It's so confusing. It's very confusing. You need definitely to learn that to translate, you know, what they're saying (laughs) or just not to, or to not do it. (laughs) I mean, but, but that's the thing is that there's a part of it that I dig still in that you go, because as long as I'm in a space that I can control, Mm -hmm. you know, I can insulate myself a little bit from that kind of craziness. And just do the work, put my head down, do the work. I like yeah. that part of it. But then on the other hand, I sometimes I, I I'll sort of like look up through my fog and say, yeah. man, I gotta like hang with somebody. You know, yeah. I want I gotta like remember <laughs> what that's like. Yeah, I think now the way that that happens is funny. I'm like sitting in this space. I visit lots of buddies of mine in their spaces. Yeah. And we kind of just, well, what are you working on? We play each other's stuff. Yeah. We kind of hang. Sometimes, you know, it'll be like, hey, you have a bass here. Let, let me just throw something down. Like, yeah. My buddy, um, uh, Zach Danziger, and I, like, you know, he's this incredible drummer. And every once in a while, he'll just be like, I was at a space the other day because I'm in town this week. And it was just like he played me all of this new stuff that he was working on. And it was like, what do you think of this? What would you do here? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it's turned into. And those are great hangs. I mean, I love that. But... The other thing is, is I don't know about you, like I geek out so hard on software that yeah. like we'll get, to, like I'll get together with certain friends and it'll be like, do you have this plugin? Do you yeah. do this thing with it? What library do you have? You know, yeah. like, and it's interesting. I mean, it's like that is everything breeds its own new experience. Like yeah. the camaraderie comes in different ways and now, the, and I the think. communities are different. No, it's true. In fact, we have never met face to face. No, I can remember until today. Although I yeah. know, for example, that you're like a deep propeller heads guy. Oh boy, yeah. And I mean, not that we need to go that, that no, deep on yeah. this, but just that I know certain things about how you like to work. Technically, just because you occasionally will post a video or say something on Facebook about yeah. what you're into, and I think that is the kind of the necessity of being in these these isolated islands is that you yeah. kind of got to share it somehow with people publicly. Absolutely. Say. And then you know the cool thing about like social media, I guess, like Facebook or whatever, when I do do that, every once in a while there are like, you know, speaking to like propeller heads and reason yeah. software, like someone will see it and I'll get like these uber dorky emails like, yeah. hey man, I noticed that you were uh, busting this, uh, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Like, cause I'm not really that technical. Yeah. So it'll, it'll like, it'll crack me up. There is, there is a community and there is camaraderie, but like, you know what, there doesn't exist anymore. Like, uh, Sam Jones and Lewis Hayes and Joe's, you know, like, just like they're just going in and playing but so that's the thing that that interests me um and i think you started to allude to a little bit is like you know our generation was the kind of the first generation where despite the fact that you got to go hang out in the real studios and the real places uh, basically we are the generation that had access to technology and maybe maybe the people that sort of affordable affordable technology and maybe the first people that were drawn to it were maybe other musicians that we saw or whatever but at this point any you know, now we're at a point where everybody's got GarageBand, everybody's got, a, yeah. sort of understands the, the building blocks of how to record. Yeah. And. Yeah, but you know what they don't understand? It's the stuff we came from. Dig it. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, you and I were both drawn in a way to electronic music, which Very much is, so. you know, it's a funny. Um, All right, I'm going to ask you why you were drawn, because I'll tell you why I was drawn. 
And but I, I want to know why you were drawn. I don't have I don't have a reason. When I heard you say earlier, uh, you got into making a certain style of music because the technology asked you to make it. And yeah. In terms of like I got into making drum and bass because I was trying to figure out how to use these tools. Yeah. And these tools seem to lend themselves to that kind of music. Yeah. That I mean I I understood that. And yeah. sometimes I say like I have to stop myself. It's like that you know they say what you know. Why does a dog lick itself because it can? Why yeah, do I yeah, put yeah. this plug in on it? Because I have, have it, it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know why I was drawn to okay. it. That's a funny, I, you know, I'll tell you. You're going to school me now, and I'm no, going to wish not. I said I'm what not. you said. No, I'm not. I'm not. And I, I think I've said this in other, you know, other, I've said this before, but it's, it's two layers. One, absolute love and, and curiosity about the tools. Second thing might surprise you. I, I was playing on a lot of records, and I was a studio musician, and I saw... Like, and, and, uh, and actually, and I wonder, this is a question for you. Did, did your father, my father and I would talk all the time and he would say, hey, I noticed something. I want to, I want to, he would always say, I want to pull your coat to mm -hmm. something. He would say, this, this is changing. Five, six years from now, that record that you played on today, like, you're not going to have that date. Like, yeah. those records, oh. he's like, I, he, he was, for, for someone that didn't understand the te technology, like, I mean, I bought him a laptop yeah. and like, he literally was like, how do you turn it on? Yeah. Like that kind of, you know, and yeah. I was like, will you push this button? He's like, hold on, I got to smoke a joint. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, he yeah. literally was like very not t in tune with technology, but he did see where mu the music business was going more so than I did. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, listen, you're not going to be playing on record soon. And that's not because you're not a good bass player, but you need to learn how to use this stuff. Hmm. So I kind of took that really seriously because I, I saw, and I, you know, I don't know, like, did your old man have ever have gaps in in years of work like where like dry periods yeah. like peaks and valleys cuz my old man really did. I think he his career is an unusual and I, and I've been thinking about it a lot now because I have a kid and I see how he was able to structure a lot of freedom in his life sure. by staying in the Midwest. I mean the wow. old, in, really? in, in a weird way. Yeah, first of all, affordability. Affordability. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, he really had to create opportunity. I mean, he wasn't on anybody's call list. You know what I mean? Like most of the records he, he built produced, his thing. Yeah, he, he really. He, he would have to like go and get you know either get the record made and then he started licensing all of his records in eight, 1980. Yeah. So he sort of started working in the model that we all kind of work in today back yeah. then, and I think in part as a function of where he was living and the scene that he was on. Very so the dry cool. spells were you know not as. They were definitely there, but they weren't as clear cut as they would be for somebody who was. That's you really know. hip, man. I didn't even think about that. that's totally amazing. I mean, he he did. Wow, that's really great. Cause see, my old man was ba basically subject to whatever trends were going on exactly. because he couldn't play anything. Yeah. He didn't write anything. He knew how to make records and pick the songs. Yeah. But if disco came along and it did. Yeah. Uh, what do I do? You know, not everybody's clamoring for this right now. Yeah. So, you know, changing I'll, things up. I'll tell you what, what my dad d has said to me many times is to understand, which is essentially what you're talking about, mm. understand when, it, when it's a good period for you. Mm. Because, you know, he said, I've seen so many cats who, just as sidemen, yeah. were getting called and playing on every date. And thinking that that money was going to last forever, oh, and that never was going to happen, away. and yeah. then, like you say, fashions change. Yeah. And so, for example, like Ben, uh, 
worked a lot with. I love that you call him dad. Yeah, I, call him I dad. would never call yeah. my old man Joel. He, I this this is pop. Yeah, yeah, dad. But that's great. Yeah. I, I don't know why, man. I, I, know, I call yeah, him Ben. I call cool. him Ben. Um, <laughs> but he, for example, he was he worked a lot over the years with Phil Upchurch, the guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, Phil was like on every session mm-hmm. in Chicago for mm-hmm. a long time, and. And then it just sort of like would go through periods where people weren't looking for that sound. And, yeah. you know, um, and again, in, in the 80s, my dad spent a lot of time in Minneapolis with around this sort of a crew of people that were not all necessarily working with Prince, although a lot of them had kind of come out of that same sure. world. Everybody in Minneapolis. Yeah, I was going to say it's yeah, kind of hard not to. Not. Yeah. And that was a scene that was like very fertile for a long time and then slowed. And, yeah. Uh, Who was he working with there? Just he, out of curiosity. He, like what? He's... Worked for years with this, the Peterson brothers, Billy <gasps> Peterson, Ricky Peterson, Paul uh, Peterson. Yeah, yeah. those I, are great they're, friends. They're amazing. Yeah. I met, I know Ricky, and I don't yeah. think he remembers me, but he, from his long, you know, from me working with Marcus, yeah. Ricky played sure. with Sanborn and still does. Yes. And I just remember, you know, spending like a whole record's worth of time around Ricky. That's right. Incredibly I, talented. That whole family. That, that family is incredible. Was it St. Paul? St. Paul. That, that ba- is that, now that's. Paul, Paul. younger brother. So those sick bass player. Those three were. I mean, it's weird because so many yeah. people don't know who they are. Oh, but if you know, you know. That was my, in high school, probably the most influential music for me. Wow. Because I mean, you wouldn't hear it necessarily no. where I'm coming from, but that was the, where my dad was spending a lot of time in high wow. school, and Ricky and and Ben had shared an office at Paisley Park. Yeah. And that was Ricky's production room for a long time. That's ridiculous. And Never knew that, man. That is so cool. It was it was amazing for me. Because they're good people, man. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're great totally people. Totally good people. And there's that kind of Midwestern kind of you know charm and niceness and also... Has, he, has Ricky been on the show? No, Ricky hasn't been on the show, but he definitely will be. It, as a matter of fact, my dad's new record that comes out in Europe in the fall, and then we're going to put it out here at... After the first of the year, it's me playing drums, yeah. my dad playing Wurlitzer, mm-hmm. Billy playing bass, and nice. Ricky playing B3. It's just the four of us. We're going to go out and do dates next week in Chicago really? and, and oh, Ohio. Nice. You going to come to LA? Not, well, hopefully eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so the, in that Sick. format, is just for me, has been like just to get to play, go uh-huh. out and play with Ricky and hear him just play the organ sound and the, the, the rhythmic thing, the way he makes you play a totally different totally way. Totally different. And I mean, I actually have to remind myself. To play, to be, listen, to listen, but to to be true to who I am. Also, in the yeah. sense that I I find myself wanting to play like Steve Jordan did on Upfront, or or try yeah. to do my best Steve that's Jordan the record. impression. Yeah, that's the record I hung out the whole time. That's how. That's when I'm. It's funny you mentioned yeah, Upfront. Unbelievable that record. Was, it really is. It really is. Uh, um, it's hard to not want to sound a certain way when you're playing with guys that you know speak that language and, and are informed but you know or and, played it you know yeah I mean, or played a, it yeah it's like that hey sound. you know what you're not charlie drayton you're not steve jordan you're you play you that you know like any you can sound like that but it's just like and they're listen charlie's an old friend like they are the shit yeah but i hear what you're saying though it's hard it's hard not to be like you know, just like lay in. But then you're just being, you're an impression of somebody. I mean, that, yeah. that, that was to me the sort of like lesson when I finally got to play. And Billy, the bass player, uh, the older brother, yeah. plays a lot with my dad and I've, I've known for years and yeah. is one of my big musical mentors and and friends. But, but Ricky, I spent more time listening to him and yeah. trying to cop him and his production sound as much as his, you know. Yeah, no, very, very, very distinct yes. style, like 
playing and produce like he's just one of those guys he's just he's a bad boy he's a bad boy and and so for me playing with him live it was like a real it was a it was just the like graduate school experience of yeah. going okay man you're, you're you now you know yeah you're not, yeah yeah you, you know you're not trying to be on those records you're going to make your own new record now. it's funny i'm just thinking of this now he's there are certain musicians you play with where you just as a like especially when there's a generational thing too because there's yeah. definitely a generational thing between us and ricky like he's the kind of guy i would imagine like i would just because he's got such a happy vibe sitting there yeah like i would just be like yo i just i want to please you man yes. i want you to look over smiling and having a good time yeah you know other guys maybe not so much yeah. you know like but i want to bring this back around to what yeah, i started saying about electronic music because yes please Unfortunately, opposite of that, I started noticing that musicians, something happened with a certain, you know, kind of jazz musician, especially for me coming through the Berkeley School of Music filter. I kind of had enough of musicians at a certain point. And I know that that's not going to sound like cool, but I found that there was a certain part of my playing that was getting annoying. There were certain, I was running into certain walls where I was sounding too much like Marcus Miller, mm -hmm. sounding too much like Jocko and Victor Bailey. Like, I didn't have a voice on, on, on bass. And I'll never forget, there's a, there's a bass player named Jeff Andrews. Do you know who Jeff mm -hmm. is? Jeff played with Mike Stern for years mm -hmm. in the 80s, and he was tight with Jocko. And, I mean, he's such a monster bass player, you know. Uh, and I got to be a little friendly with him. You know, I don't think he ever really heard me play. I think I took like one lesson with him when I was like yeah. 18. And I'll never forget him saying to me, I was, I was kind of talking like I am right now. I was saying, yeah. man, guys are just getting annoying and all these guys that practice too much and every gig is a rehearsal. Like, I'm just, I've had enough. And he was just like, you know, do you play anything else? And I was like, well, I've been messing around with synths and, mm -hmm. and you know, and like samples. And, you know, and he's like, well, maybe that can be your voice. And I was like, you know what? I thank you, because I I can't, you know. And here's the other thing that bullshit guilt that you put yourself through for not practicing 55 hours a yes. day. I was kind of saying to him, hey man, you know, I'm really bummed. I, you know, I only practiced two hours yesterday. Yeah. He's like, listen, don't. You're gonna burn your mind up. You know, every single thing you do, every time you touch a keyboard, or every time you fuck with a sample, or whatever. I'm sorry, do you curse on your show? You curse all you Okay, want. good. It's a regular joint. Yeah. Fuck. Um, he, he was like, you're, you're discovering your voice with everything. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, I've said it to him before, but like, thank you, Jeff. Like that literally gave me a kind of courage to be like, I don't really give a shit what that guitar player thinks. Or I don't up, care yeah. what this, you know, and I, you know, it's funny. I've had certain musician friends of mine from that era go like, wow, man, you're like, you really, you just, you did like a 179, yeah. you know, like you didn't yeah. really, you know, you just stopped. Yeah. Like I just stopped. Yeah. You know? And I'm kind of happy about it. Yeah. Like I, I like, I love being a bass player, but not that much. <laughs> but does it feel good when you get to go out and dig love in? Love it. I, yeah. I love to play. I especially love being on my own gig because yeah. no one gives me notes. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. Right. Which I have notes from other gig pop gigs I've been on. They're the funniest stories. Like you know, I, I just got sick of playing for people. I wanted to just do my own thing. So yeah. what were you doing? You were in New York for a long time. Yeah, I, I moved. To, I came back to New York in '92 from Berkeley, and from '92 until about '98, I played on a lot of records. And I, you know, I, I, I 
toured and I, you know, like I. And you came, when you, when you came here, you were here to be a bass player. Yeah, I'll never forget. Like, so Marcus Miller works with this woman uh, named B.B. Green. And I had known B.B. since I was like 16. And I remember coming back and it was like one of those like, sort of like, you know, I got off the bus in Hollywood and I got the job, you know, yeah. like I literally came back and I was like, B.B., like I'm looking for work as a bass player. I just did like two and a half years at Berkeley. Like I'm ready. And she said, give me a tape of stuff you've played on. And I'm sure whatever I gave her, man, was like, you know, me taking a solo, no one would ever ask to hear or want to, you know, but I showed some facility Yeah. and she started, basically it was like she was... And some taste, I'm sure. I'm sure there was, there had to have been some Well, taste. I mean, I hope, I don't think so, but <laughs> yeah, there was, there was some sort of like, I can play certain things and I can read and I just, I did my work and I... Luckily, because of a relationship with Marcus, I had a good relationship with her. And she was like, you know what? Marcus is moving to L.A. He gets called for things. You know, maybe I'll throw you... They're easy gigs. I mean, these are like, you know, pop records. It's not like I need to sound like Marcus and take three yeah. solo, you know. So she started booking me on stuff, and it would be like Japanese pop records, French pop records, English, you know, the Mexican pop. Like, I played on tons of stuff. Yeah. And it just worked. Like, I'll never forget, man. Like, I remember going, I did a Japanese pop record for, like, this J-pop star who had written for all the, this huge boy band. And this was his solo record. And I literally went into Right Track, and it was, like, me, Hiram Bullock, Juju House for Me, You. Like, ridiculous, like, like literally we had a chart for a pop song that, it was an ostinato. Yeah. I mean, it's a repetitive baseline that had like one change and it was like a 12 page chart because every single measure had been written out. And I took a bass solo on a pop tune. Hiram Bullock and I both soloed on a pop wow. tune. And it was just like, wow, this, this is strange, yeah. but I love it. But I just, yeah, I played a lot and I played, I lived on Bleecker Street. You know, have you done that hang? Like, have you had to like play like, you know, like five nights a week on like no, blues no, no, bands no, no, and no. like. I definitely did that. I just think I got sick of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like seven years of just like, I guess when, you're, when your dream is to get a, I want to play bass for Maxwell. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to get that gig that I have for a decade. I didn't see it coming. Like, I just didn't. Was that the dream? As a side man, don't you want to get, like, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I, I would love to play in Steely Dan, you know, or yeah, when yeah, I, you yeah. know, one of, one of those things where it's like, I play bass for James Taylor. Like, yeah. you know, Jimmy Johnson can't do the gig. Like, I'm going to do, you know, I'm doing this tour. Like, I just, yeah, I guess that was... Not, be... not doing pickup gigs, not doing casuals, not doing one-nighters. No, just no, doing, no. But I, you know what? I would see my friends come off the road from really major pop gigs and, like, they'd be on a wedding, like, sure. that next weekend. And I'm like, oof. I mean... And these are guys I love, really dear old friends, and I'd be like, I, I can't, I can't do that. I can't be on the road for seven months and then need to play the Goldberg bar, bar mitzvah next weekend. But the weird thing I think in New York particularly is that it's a kind of a those guys are good musicians. First of all, they're good musicians. <laughs> yeah, they're really good. But the other thing is it's a kind of a double-edged thing when you get a gig that takes you out of town. From what I've seen, because you're, gone. you're off the scene. You're gone. So if you're back, you need to go back in the same front door as everybody else and remind people that you're back here. And if that means it's the Goldberg Bar Mitzvah, you do the gig. Yeah. I, I th it seems to me. You're that you're I've seen you're that. spot on. And you know what? I prefer to be gone. Yeah. Like I lived in France for a while. I, anytime I could go anywhere and like do a gig somewhere else, I did it. Yeah. And 
really what that bread was, the constant reminding everyone of your existence when you return. Yes. And then, like, trying to... Like, I lived in France. I lived in Paris long enough that I started producing French pop records. Yeah. And it would be weird because I'd come back here and it would be like I'd hire friends to play on stuff. But, like, they were just like, you're not around. We're not hiring you. to. So you kind of become a producer... By virtue of just, well, you're not really a sideman anymore anyway. You're kind of like, well, you're doing this, so I wouldn't think to call you. Yes. Yeah, and that was always weird for me. I'd be like, hey, I just played on a record date with you. Like, why wouldn't you, you know I'll play bass on something for you. And he'd be like, no, you're a producer now. I'm not going to make you like, I'm like, no, I will work. But so the world started defining you differently as well. Yeah. So it was kind of strange, and that didn't last terribly long. As soon as I started doing my thing, and and it sort of resonated, I was like, I'm, this is what I, this is all I'm gonna. So, do. but you started doing it here and then decided to move to the to the West Coast. Oh, I've only been on the West Coast for like three years. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I lived here up until 2010, uh, and I I mean, you know, when my father passed, New York kind of that chapter kind of went with it. So it was kind of like my wife and I and my stepson. You know, we were just thinking, well, where you know, where where do we want to go? Yeah, we'd like to go where there's no winter. Yeah. <laughs> so we just we went yeah. to LA and we, I, I love it I mean and that's a whole other bag of worms and then a whole other thing to learn yeah but by and large I think moving there at 40 and doing that at a point where yeah. you've already kind of built a little bit of something it, it buys you time to learn that scene and kind of navigate the water it's a totally different thing New York and LA have like very little to do with each other in ter- even in terms of the music world. Yeah. You know? Tell me, I mean, if you don't mind, tell no, me. No, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm also sc- scoring films and, yeah. and trying to break into, like, score TV stuff, so I... I That's the place to be. Yeah, and it really... Yeah. And, and I figured... more. More Yeah. It, it's... Yeah, but it's odd. A lot of my work is coming out of New York doing that, so it's, like, it's kind of strange to think that I'm there doing stuff here, but I just felt like, you know... It's a different world there because, like, TV and and more TV than film, that's really, like, in order to jump in on a gig like that, you need your hit from that world. And in TV, they don't really... It's weird. TV and film kind of fight each other. They don't really care about each other. So if I've had music and a bunch of films that were huge, like someone at ABC, like, in production that's going to hire someone to do scores, they, they don't care. Yeah. All they need to know is... I need to know you worked on a hit TV show and that every Wednesday when you need to be on the mix stage and you've had your 36 hours to do your score work, it's done yeah. and it's amazing. You know, not amazing. I need to know I can trust you because you've done this for someone else. Yes. Or I, I see your name attached to something so big I can't deny it. So it's weird. It's, you know, and it's coming. I mean, I've been working on some of these shows and I've been helping some friends of mine that are composers on big shows. Yeah. So I think I'm feeling how you work your way in. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's going to take a minute. It's, it's a very difficult thing, yeah. you know? And it should take a minute. I've only been doing it for a little while. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But L.A., L.A.'s great. I, this is what I have to say about L.A. and New York. You get stabbed in the front in New York. And that's it on L.A. and New York. L.A., everything's, like, shiny and so great to meet with you. Oh, my God, you have the job and you don't. Yeah. And that's fine. I, I get it. You learn a language, you know? Yeah, right. Check I have the job when the check shows. Yeah. <laughs> That's Man. I have it's job. funny. My dad always referred to what he called the Hollywood slow no, which is yeah. yes. Which is yes. Yes. That's totally it. Yeah. Oh, God. 
That's great. The slow note. It's like a, something Moe's Allison would say. It's, it's a, like a total, like... Straight out of Moe's, for sure. Mm. So, you know, you've talked about Marcus, and it, and it reminds me that I, I, maybe you've talked about it more in other places, but... So what happened? You reached out to, as a, like a young player, you reached out to him? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I wrote him a letter, care of Luther Vandross's management company, because I'm like, well, if I want to find this bass player... And I heard him play with Sanborn. I heard that run for cover solo that everybody knows off of Straight to the Heart, that live record. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to be this guy. I want to be this guy. Like, this is how you play bass. And I wrote him a letter and I didn't hear from him for like a year. Because why would someone write him a letter to right. the management company for an artist? Like, these people don't talk to Marcus. They right. talk to Luther. So... Somehow he got the letter because someone was like, hey, this was written to yeah. you here and they were in the studio doing something. And I guess he had it. And then I got this random phone call one day and I thought it was my buddy Wolf, this drummer Steve Wolf. And I, and I basically like, I don't think I hung up on him, but I started quizzing him. And I was just like, hey, like if this is you, what key is this song in? What, you know, who, who's your co-writer on that? You know, like I kind of had some, and he answered everything correctly. So I was like, oh my God, this is really Marcus Miller. And it's funny, like he's become this icon in bass. But at, at that time, he was like a big producer and like musicians respected him. But like anybody I talked to and was like, hey, do you know who this guy is? Like a lot of musicians didn't know. Mm -hmm. Like, so people were like, wow, you really love this guy. Are you sure? Like, this is who you want to, I'm like, nope, this is who I want to learn from. And, you know. So it took a while, but we finally met up, and he was super cool. He just was like, hey, come to the studio anytime I'm there, and just be quiet. Just sit in a corner, keep your mouth shut. And is that what you were asking for? You were just... Yeah. You I, said, Can I, I never you? wanted to take bass lessons. I never wanted to... I was never concerned. I knew that... I, I kind of knew that... Actually, after hanging with him a couple of times, I kind of knew he would never give me a bass lesson anyway. He's all observational he's he's not a guy that says oh no no hey you do it like this and then you know you hold your hands this. he's not that guy um so i just learned from watching and honestly i learned more from watching his team uh and the process of doing about six records five six records than i learned from any one thing he did you know what so I mean? you and you watched him produce and play and yeah play. i went through an entire miles davis record uh two david sanborn records um, a Roberta Flack record and um, one one Luther record. I think I said that, but yeah. And then like a Joe Sample record, like records that you'd make in like four or five days. Yeah. You know, a Joe Sample record that was really cool. And so it, so that's right. interesting because you, you know, your dad was a record producer, worked with a lot of those same people. Wasn't even. working then. I mean, I remember talking about those sort of dry periods. Yeah. He was starting the next phase of his career, which was reissue production and box sets and, you know, archival recordings. Yeah. Because he saw that, hey, this it's over, you know, like, not over in the sense that I'll never produce records again, but over in the sense that, like, you know, I, I'm not Tommy LaPuma, I'm not Phil Ramone, like, there's, 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 I'm not going to work at a label and have a job yeah. in the corporate side of things and produce. There's just, there isn't, a, there wasn't room for him. Yeah. And he wasn't that guy. You know, yeah. I love, and I loved that he was totally tight with Tommy, and we would hang out with Arif Martin, yeah. and they, these were real family friends. Yeah, and you know, the closest guy to him that was like him was Stuart Levine, yeah, who was like my dad West. Yeah, and Levine was just like I'm not, 
work at a label? Are you kidding me? He's like, I'll get they'll throw me out of this place in five hours. Yeah. I can't do that tap dance. I, I you think know. you have to be a certain kind of part of it is political, part mm-hmm. of it is social, part oh. of it is you know Yeah. There's a lot but part of it is holding a job. Yeah. Right. These being guys able to never wanted to just have yeah, a that's job. True. I don't want that's a true. job. That's true. This isn't a job. Yeah. That's true. So yeah, you know, I he wasn't working. And and when he would, you know, it would be like, you know, three days here, four days there in the studio. He never made records that took months to make. Right. These guys were well, Luther record took like eight months to make. You know, this was these were like they were like making films. Like yeah. this took a while. So I I kind of was like, hey, I want to learn the craft of this. And I couldn't think of a better person in terms of nuts and bolts. On a music level, it was super high, but it was crafted and they were pop songs that were hits. Yeah. And then the technology side of things, he had this guy, Jason Miles, who's a keyboard programmer sure. working with him. He had every synthesizer on the planet and it became my gig to set them all up and know how to route all the MIDI cables and you know, what order they needed to be powered up. So I learned a lot of, like, I learned how to use an MPC-60. I learned the differences between Roland synths and emulator samplers, you know, that played back sounds and Yamaha, like, I, sonically. So I learned all this stuff years before I could afford yeah, <laughs> any of it. Like, I, I think it's it's important for any kid listening That's true. <laughs> to understand that, it, like, an emulator 3 was, like, a $12,000, like, sampler and synth, like... yeah. It was completely unattainable. Yeah. Honestly, I always ask Jay, I'm like, how did you get this? And you were like, loans. Yeah. Guys took loans and they paid, like it was like a mortgage, Yeah. you know, to get this gear. Or at a certain point, you start getting it for free because you're an ambassador for the company because people know you're working on all these big things. Yep. But it, it seemed like the perfect place to sit and learn the art of record making in that specific period. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't have another plan. I mean, I left high school to do this. I, I didn't go to 11th and 12th grade. I, the second he said, you know, come around and hang, my dad was like, why don't you get your GED? Why don't you do this? This is your job. Your job is to learn this. And it makes most normal humans cringe. You're not, you're smiling because you're like, holy shit, that's like being on the Yankees, you know? It's pretty hardcore. I mean, it's funny. I don't know that uh, my dad would have said that to me. I, I, I know he wouldn't. And I also yeah. don't know that I would have had the honestly the balls to do it. <laughs> but I also, you know, I think about how I think brilliant it is, considering you saw what you want. You know, if if you as an eleventh grader could I- identify this cat, yeah, this I want to learn what this guy yeah. has. No, I did. As opposed to I think what a lot of you know young musicians or future producers or artists or whatever might have which is a kind of I want to get in this business somehow or I want to yeah. be successful as opposed to I want to work with that guy yeah and I can I have yeah. I have an opportunity that's a different thing that's like actually more of an uh, of an old style um, apprenticeship it's what it was it's like the burgermeisters you know it's like the guild mentality yes and and the funniest thing is it's like you know I think you know I don't think Marcus looked at it that way I did yeah and I knew, like, we weren't, we didn't vocalize it, we didn't verbalize it. I took, I mean, for the first six months I went to the studio, he was Mr. Miller. Like, this was, I was eyes on prize, and, like, I, I didn't go as far as to, like, t- literally take notes, but I took notes. Yeah. I, you know, and it's funny, I, I think that maybe at that point, 
I was really cocky as a bass player. Like, I was already starting to work a little, yeah. like doing sessions, huh. um, which also was sort of informed me not wanting to really go to school anymore. I would be, like, missing school because I had, like, gigs or I'd play in clubs and, like, you know, who wants That's to like get the up? That's the Berkeley story, right, that a lot of people leave because they're... They realize they can work as opposed. To oh yeah, you get a gig. Like that's that's your diploma is like you know getting a gig. So I was I was kind of working and I was really cocky and needed to be put in my place and I was, eventually. <laughs> but you know I was like hey like I'm gonna do this and that's it. I remember friends of my family were like you can't do this. What if you fail? And I'm like, what do you? Why would I even think that way? Yeah. And that's Crank. like I should have. You know, I know in a lot of other areas of my life, I'd love to channel that 16-year-old me, that sort of blind, I will not be put off the tracks sort of faith. I don't. <laughs> There's definitely... Man, I, I... should do that with my film stuff. I should like... Fuck yeah. I think about that all the time. The same thing. If yeah. I could go back and have the same confidence I had as a 16-year-old, because it's sort of like you don't know what you don't know. And you also... And you don't give a shit. Yeah. I didn't give a shit. Yeah. I was like, hey, this is... You know, if it ain't funky, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, it was such a limited, you know, I didn't know what taxes were. I didn't know right. what, you know, oh, you know, my kids got swimming lessons. Yeah. I didn't have any of that, yeah. so I didn't care. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think you should still think the same way anyway. But it's funny, like, in this game, it's like, it was funny. I sat down with uh, a producer named M. Tume. I was telling yeah. you earlier, I sat down with M. Tume, and, and he said something so hip. He was like, he was like, everyone can play. And everyone figures this out. It's like twenty percent your ability to play. The yeah. rest is your attitude, and the rest and and that's like meaning having a good attitude, but also being like, hey, I will not be stopped yeah. too. Like you have to have that determination, and you know. So, what were some of the um, most sort of memorable or biggest kind of pieces of wisdom that you got from the time with Marcus Miller? Then, us. Wow. Um, is there anything that you think like every time you walk in the room you remember or are there are there more subtle things far more subtle because he's not really it's funny like you know like I'll see him and we'll hang and it's pleasant but he's not like a hangout guy he's not like your best friend right like and it's funny even years later like I ended up I was in his band for a short spell like I worked on records with him like as an adult like I worked I wasn't like you know the make going and getting dry cleaning you know right. like but I think everything was like osmosis. The, the stuff I got from him was like I really knew how to work, how to work a room, and how to make things work, and how to how to keep things moving. Mm -hmm. That he's, and it's funny he doesn't really produce records anymore. No. Like he stopped, and he was really really good at that aspect. Really good. He knew how to set up the vibe, and it wasn't like an overbearing thing like this. That. The day just moved along. They all, there was always momentum in a room that he was in. Stuff didn't get complacent uh, or stop. Um, but no, into, no real pearl of wisdom. It's funny because I really hung out with a, you know, a lot of guys through him. I think I got more pearls of wisdom. Like I spent a lot of time around Lenny White, mm -hmm. and Lenny, probably totally unbeknownst to him, like I learned a lot from Lenny. Also by osmosis, but he would also just be like, he just had an amazing ability of just cutting stuff down to its core and calling bullshit on things and just, he's, he's a very distinct personality. Yeah. You know, he's amazing. He's such a great drummer. But uh, yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of 
You know what, man? You I think by saying what you did say, which is that he moved it forward, yeah. it's like it's not a technical thing. You know, I think people sometimes expect that it, that production has a that there's a technical right answer to something. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are a million ways to to take care of a problem. Yeah. Or to get a record made, or to yeah. run a session. or to not have a problem, or to not or to, have yeah. a problem. Many yeah. ways to not yeah. have a problem. Yeah. But so much of it is just moving it forward, and yeah. you can't. I mean, I love that that um, that line that everybody, you know, everybody, everybody out here figures out how to play. That's what Miles said to him yeah. too, man. He literally, said, he's like, everybody can play. It's your attitude that determines yeah. like whether or not you're going to be in the room with me. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. You but, know what uh, I, th I think is interesting is I read that your dad mm -hmm. got connected to Atlantic by writing a letter. Yeah, same story. I mean, I followed the history that he followed. I mean, he wrote a letter to, um, he didn't write to Amit Erdogan. He was drawn to the jazz and R&B side of things, so yeah. he knew to write to Neswi, yeah. uh, which was Amit's brother who was never spoken about, but he was the heart and soul of Atlantic. I mean, he's the one that signed Coltrane. He's the one that, you know, I know in Ray, they always, you know, Amit, you know, allegedly signed, you know, Ray Charles. But yeah. Nesui, very strong in there. Mingus, the MJQ, um, just Atlantic. The heart and soul of Atlantic, especially the jazz stuff, was all Nesui Erdogan. So my father started writing him letters um, because he heard Ray Charles and he said, listen, this is amazing. And then he, my father would start... You know, at like 14, after he got like a, you know, he got a reply one time, you know, a thank you for your correspondence, you know, we will take, you know. He started writing ideas for singles that Ray Charles, songs that Ray Charles should sing. You know, pretty, you know. He took that as a, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah no, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he wrote a letter and he just stayed in touch. And I, but the, here's the thing. He did a certain, he became a disc jockey in Philly. He started breaking records for Atlantic. Not purposely just Atlantic. He, he loved their records. Mm -hmm. And when they saw that this 18, 19-year-old disc jockey, you know, through Temple University, was, you know, this persistent guy, was starting to break their records, like make them sell appreciably more in a big market. Philly was a huge market for, sure. especially for jazz and R&B. Um, the correspondence quickly changed. Um, and he started building really good relationships with all the artists that came through town because he would emcee the sh you know their shows and they would come on his you know his his, his show you know on air, and uh, yeah they finally gave him a shot. Uh, produced a Sonny Stitt record that Sonny had already recorded two weeks earlier. <laughs> huh. Oh, dear. meaning like he just went in the studio and recorded the same you know just cashed the check. It's called Deuces Wild. I think it was in '64 '65, huh. and then that just. They said, all right, you know, come on in. You know, like, they, you know, and that's what like, I like you. You know, let's start feeding you more stuff. Who do you think we should sign? Like, it, it built. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a trip. I mean, we both wrote letters. But I had a roadmap for my thing. He didn't. Were you, so were you thinking about that? Were you looking at that model when you started reaching out to people in high school? N no. I, I actually, <laughs> as a degenerate sports fan, had written letters to athletes I loved. And I figured, you know... I'd never gotten a response, yeah. but I figured you want to reach somebody, write them a letter. Yeah. I mean, it was a heartfelt letter. I don't have it. Un unlike my father, who literally kept his correspondence that he got back, like he has letters from from Nesui. It's yeah. kind of spectacular. Yeah. 
but uh, on Atlantic stationary, yeah, yeah, like, you head, know, yeah. oh, so it's like from the 50, like, it's so cool. But, uh, no, I just was like, I, I don't know about you, like, every once in a while, I'll get correspondence, like, I'll yeah. get emails from someone, like, you know, that's heard my records in somewhere, you know, like, in France or yeah. Germany. I, I pay attention. Sure. I mean, if someone is going to take the time to tell you that they care about, up to a certain point, by the way, like, I pay attention until it gets, you know, it can get weird. But, uh, yeah, I mean... I think it says a lot about a person to some degree uh, to take the initiative to do it, you know? And there yeah. are not that many people that do it. I agree with you. If somebody takes the time, um, especially back then, I guess now it's sort of relatively easy to go yeah. to a website or a Facebook or a t tweet at somebody. And yeah. But to really sit down and write a letter. You know who yeah. I wrote to? Comedians. Yeah! I wrote to comedians. Who'd you write to? Billy Crystal. Perfect. I mean, you kind of had a childhood similar to his. I guess in a sort of way I did, yeah. Although, you know, when you're a kid, you don't Billie know Billy Holiday that. was in his right, house. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a little different, but yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess in a sense. But, um, but I didn't know anything about that. I mean, I didn't know um, about his family. I just, I just dug him, and I wrote him a letter. Yeah. I was a kid, and he wrote back to me. And, like, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he just wrote me a little... You know, yeah, here you go, kid. Like, yeah, Who loves your baby? Exactly. You know, that's totally so With a signed photo, which I yeah. have framed at my parents' house. Nice. But, um, but I think, sure, if you take, if you're a kid, especially if you're a kid, right, yeah. and you reach out, I mean, it must mean, yeah. it must be very meaningful. When a 15 year old writes you a letter and, yeah. and, and articulates a specific thing, like I put myself in Marcus's head, yeah. you know, I did say in the in the letter because he, he never really worked with my old man, but I said, "Listen, this is who my old man is," and yeah. I tell you this for, basically for reference. I'm not messing, you know, like yeah. I'm not messing around, but that doesn't make it so like, oh well, you should answer me because my dad produced Roberta, you know, right. like big, you know, you know, big deal. But I, I I have to say like that that had to have helped because the subsequent subject matter that I touched on I'm sure was just like I listened to this record you did I learned these things like blah, blah, blah. like I I knew about his career yeah and I and I I spoke to things in his career that I wanted to emulate and that has to mean something coming from a 15 year old like yeah. you know to be that but yeah just wrote him a letter and I still tell you know I anytime like you know like on the like software and if I do stuff for propeller heads and I go do their like little conferences and kids are there like I talk to kids yeah like this is a generational thing and you come through different filters and like anyone who like sloughs off a kid or just says like, Oh, I don't have time or whatever is a douche. Like yeah. these kids, you know, if we want music to continue to, you know, hopefully get back on track and yeah. start getting good again, like you got to get these people that are reaching out to you, like excited about pursuing it and like, you know, like understanding that there's great stuff in it, you know? Or well, that, it's interesting that you say, you know, getting back on track, because one of the things I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about reaching out to Marcus Miller is like, well, okay, so who would the 15-year-old, you know, Adam Dorn reach out to today? Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I certainly don't think it would be, uh, I don't think it would be Marcus. Right. Because I don't think I would be, like, I don't think that would be on my radar. Um, well, it would, and it would be a different thing if you reached out to Marcus. I hate to be, say it, I'd probably reach out to someone at Goldman Sachs. Oh! <laughs> and I'd be like, how do I make all that money? No, um, you know, in, in, you know what? I'd like to think that maybe still being in the same, you know, I'm assuming I still have the same father, and I'm assuming that I still, like, if my father was me, like, yeah. I would just be like, 
it's weird. I'd probably go back further. I'd probably reach out to like James Gadsden. Yeah, or, right, like, right. I would be like, I can, how far can I get away from Kesha? Yeah. Like, what's the polar opposite of Kesha? James Gadsden. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what, what is, yeah. yeah. What's the opposite of Katy Perry? I actually like Katy Perry. I shouldn't rag on her. And they both have the same producer, which is funny. But yeah, I, I don't know. Music would, music would be tough. Who would you reach out to? Man, I don't, I don't know. I, but it's funny. I, what I did do when I started reaching out to people was I, I got pretty obscure. And I also reached out to people who were a little bit disconnected from my dad's world. But, okay. But yet were in a sort of a, a parallel universe in their own way. I got really into Latin music and Latin alternative music. Right. And yeah, so, I saw that. You ended up, you worked on, you, you did that Motorcycle Diaries I, flick, man. That's really cool. It was funny when you were saying how, like, film people respect a film credit and yeah. TV people. Like, I have the ultimate film credit, but it was never my intention. And right. I didn't do anything with it because I didn't, I wasn't positioned to follow up on I wasn't, like, going for that at all. I just, I just fell into it. But I ended up working on this thing that won an Oscar. Yeah. Um, but only because I loved this guy Jorge Drexler who wrote yeah. the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I, st- I went when I was in college, I spent a little time living in Spain. I spent a year living in Spain, Great. where I just swallowed up. Where'd you go to school? Did I went you... to college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is my hometown. I stayed yeah. there. I mean, wow, I stayed. really? I it's supposed leave. to be a great school. Oh, it's it's, it's like a, a totally great. It's a top. big it's big where ten. The onion is from. It can't be bad. It's where the onion comes from. A lot of really hip stuff came came comes from that. It continues to come from Madison and. Yeah, man, I stayed. I mean, I stayed in my home city basically until I moved to New York in my late twenties. So I, oh. I really, I did everything, kind of trying to follow my in my dad's footsteps and, mm-hmm. and having seen that, oh, he did this from here, yeah. so I could. But you know, why not? I think maybe it would have been possible, but I, I think it's a different time, and mm. and I also think he was more I look at him, it was just a very unusual thing that he managed to pull off. I, yeah. Sometimes I say to him like, I can't believe anybody. Knowing how competitive L.A. and New York are, I can't believe anybody would be sitting in an office somewhere in New York or L.A. and go, you know, the only guy that can yeah, do we need this. Ben. We, we need Ben. We need to fly him in from Madison. Where's like, Ben? <laughs> you know, like to have have been able to, you know, um, to convince people that that was true and to, and to have it be a reality. That's impressive. Yeah. But anyway, I when I went to Spain, I just absorbed. I, I was living in Seville in south of Spain, and I yeah. just sucked it up. I mean, I just, I almost like, in a zealot way, like I just wanted to just be Spanish. I wanted you yeah. to look at a picture of me standing with twenty Spaniards and not be able to tell. Yeah, them like yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. I wanted to talk like I was from the south of Spain. I wanted to play music like I was from the south of Spain. Like I got, nice. I went deep into it. And and when I came back to finish college, and then at the years after school, like I, I focused on going back to Spain, booking tours for myself in Spain. Right. You had a real connection. I wanted to be a cat on that scene. I went and started yeah. recording with those guys, with these, with the people that I had heard on the Spanish records. And, yeah. Um, and I think in a way it was like a way for me to, in some ways, do what you did. Yeah. You know, to go and br- branch out and learn something from some people that I really love. Yeah. And also it was like definitely a move away from the commercial reality of making making music. It yeah. was because there was no real I don't know how what I thought was ever gonna happen by me becoming like a cat on the Spanish mm. scene exactly. But it, it was just interesting to me and it was it was uh, available to me and everybody that I reached out to in Spain 
I mean, I think they were, looking back on it, I think they were probably pretty floored that here comes this 21-year-old yeah. calling Tino DiGiraldo the cajon player and yeah, asking yeah, him, yeah, like, yeah. begging him to play on my record. Yeah, you know, I man. Think he was like, what? Okay, yeah, cool. No, you know, or, I mean, it's where your heart was drawn, and, yeah. and you know, I'm sure they felt that, and yeah. it's like, you know, that's super hip. How long were you there? I mean, I, was, I lived there for a year, and then I was going back two months a year. Oh, wow. I was trying to spend as much time as I could there. That's great. And trying to be in that scene, and but that's a that's a long way of answering who would I reach out to because I think yeah. I, I probably would be looking for something weird and a place that I could have a space in. Like the great thing yeah. about that scene was there was room for me there. Yeah. Whereas if I don't know if you were going to reach out to like a really successful pop producer or songwriter, I, there's not a lot of Boy, room. There's no room. There's no room. I don't even know. Honestly, I don't know how. I really don't even know how these guys become producers now. Yeah. I mean, I, re I really don't know. I know, but I don't know. Because it's just a question of, like, who's mining for this? Who's A&Ring this? Who's finding? You know, it used to be, you know, it would be like, oh, you know, especially in the electronic world, it'd be like, oh, these are the two biggest, um, you know, down-tempo producers from Stockholm. You know what I mean? I always used to crack up yeah. and be like, you know what? I really want to release... Uh, a record and and absolutely make pretend that I'm from Iceland and like no one knows what I look like I mean the ship's out on this kind of idea but it's just like I, I've always just wanted to completely dupe like KCRW and KEXP like all these like you yeah. know sort of like early adopter stations and then show up and be like how are you yeah. you know what I mean be like it's well, just me yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just me everything I'm hip again <laughs> You know, and then just be like, oh, man. Uh, but, like, yeah, but I just, I don't know. I don't even, I, do you even pay attention to pop music at this point? I mean, yes and no. It's one of those weird things that, like, I have, my my closest friends who are music lovers are probably not musicians. You know, the yeah. music, you know. The, the, there's a difference between being sort of like that obsessive music fan who's just like stays hip and tuned into everything that comes yeah. out, and then like the musicians who you know you, you don't have a time. I don't. I don't yeah, have time. yeah. I don't. And it's confusing, and it's I, I do follow it a little bit, but not. But I don't know. Not not enough that I would say like this producer or this you know, or this just, musician. You know, yeah. No. There's no. Maybe Questlove. I could see somebody reaching out to Questlove and saying like I want to shadow you. I want to be your. Person. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Maybe so. It's weird for me to think of that. I went to high school with him briefly. Right. Uh, I wouldn't reach out to him, but um, but I mean, if you were that like, would make sense if you're young and you want to get around. Like they're actually playing instruments, and they're and producing actually records. producing records. They're on TV. It's like an all all encompassing like yeah. you know multi media sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, that would make sense. And you know, and he's an encyclopedia. You know, definitely certain styles of music, but. Uh, yeah, it's interesting in terms of producers. No, none. I mean, because the thing is, at that point, you're thinking of yourself like, oh, I make, you know, trap or dubstep. And, you know, it's just like, you know, that stuff, it's over in eight months anyway. Yeah. I remember my old man used to talk about when he was having his run in Atlantic, he was really tight with um, Lamont Dozier from Holland Dozier Holland from uh -huh. the Motown production team. Yeah. And they would talk. I think Stuart Levine was like, they actually hung out and they worked together. But my, my dad became like phone buddies, you know, because they were in Detroit or L.A. And, we, you know, my old man was in New York. 
And all they would talk about was how, because you were talking about this before, sidemen that were, were on gigs and they just, why would it end? And then it ends. They would just talk and it just he would say like, yeah, why would this ever end? Why would Atlantic ever stop making the records that they're making? Yeah. Because they did. Because <laughs> that's not, because because it goes from Laverne Baker to Laura Branigan kind of really quickly, Back. like you know. Well, you and, know. The, and then the, and then the sort of the, in the final analysis, when you look at where we are today, and you know, you said earlier, well, when music maybe turns around again or whatever. I mean, on one hand, there's a lot of music being made, a lot of great music great being made. Shit, yeah. But if you look at not just the music, but the business and the delivery system of music, yeah. the whole thing sort of happened really fast. I mean, yeah. Yeah. 60 years, uh, 100 years at most between when people first started recording music yeah. and to where we are today. The whole business of the of recording, production, the whole thing, right. it happened super fast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about somebody who's busy for five years or 10 years, yeah, it's yeah, never yeah, going to yeah, stop. Yeah. Like, it's a blip. It's really a blip. I'm sure somewhere there's like a guy you know, that's like 96, that's still lamenting the downfall of like, you know, uh, sheet music. Of course. You know, like, oh, those, you know, like, you know, what are you, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's a blip. It, it's, it's kind of a blip. I, I was thinking like, you know, the, this thought that, uh, you know, the, there were regional production styles and and sub subgenres and the, and things were you if you went to DC there were DC records you went to Cincinnati there was you know Muscle Shoals LA Detroit and Philly, Philly 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 I mean yeah Gamble you know Gamble and Hop and you know Philly an international thing I I wonder just bear with me through the sort of dissolving of everything and I know that the ubiquity of the net maybe makes this hard. But maybe with stuff sort of crumbling, if that kind of can come back a little, because then it's just like you have to keep things local and grow them mm -hmm. in order f and build it, I think, in order for stuff to actually kind of really, you know, like I tell guy, anybody who's in a band, I'm like, build your thing where you are, have a residency, like don't waste your time and money on the road trying to grow something, you know, like more than a couple hundred mile radius, yeah. you know what I mean? I kind of wonder if there's the way kids are going to learn how to play music and then mix stuff all together, if there's going to be like, yeah, man, I mean, and I don't buy this whole like, well, trap is from Atlanta. It's like the trap is just a bastardization of a couple other styles. It's not like that much of a thing. Right. You know, I don't know. I, uh, I agree with you. I, I have actually wondered about that a lot. As a matter of fact, when I still lived in Madison, I wanted to do, I mean, this is not pop music. This is just one little corner of straight ahead jazz, but mm. the Milwaukee scene, for example, yeah. all the straight ahead jazz players that came out of Milwaukee. Name some. I'm actually well, there's a, don't know. There's a piano player who was there for a long time named Dave Hazeltine, who's now here. Okay. But he was the teacher there. Okay. And a lot of people kind of learned out of, you know, kind of through influence. Yeah, influenced by him. And he's a great piano player. And then um, subsequently, like Dan Nimmer, who plays piano in the Lincoln Jazz, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, oh, he's, Witten. Yeah, he's, he's a he's, he's a, a monster, yeah. and he came out of Milwaukee. But those are just some of the people that came and landed in New York. I mean, there are still yeah. people that are in Milwaukee or went to Chicago, or but those cats all 
played in the same idiom. Like they would, yeah. they would play the same arrangements of standards. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. same, the half a dozen bass players and half a dozen drummers, and they would all kind of play in a very blue note, yeah, like way. You know, and they, and I thought, well, that's so. That's what Milwaukee sounds like. Yeah, that's what they're that's, into. They built this, and yeah. they're influencing each other. And even in my own like limited life in you know as a as a drummer in Wisconsin, I was as influenced by the you know local guys by certainly by Clyde, although he wasn't local, but he was yeah, to me yeah, because yeah. I was seeing him play locally. It's Clyde, and the other guys around too that I would go see. There's a drummer in at Lawrence in Appleton named Dane Richeson who was very mm. influential to me. He's a teacher. He's a great drummer. But I just got to see him a lot, and so yeah. whoever you see. And whoever right. you hear, that's what influences you and it, and affects you. So in that sense, I think uh, in order to make any sense of the of the onslaught of music, maybe the local thing is does have more. I more mean, you gotta learn how to play, and you gotta play with people, and then maybe you know because of whatever you know the people that you're around, something can build out of that. Yeah. It should. Yeah. You know, I, I think that you know Charlie and I talk about this all the time. This sort of like. You know, we're not, I'm not, listen, I went to one of these schools. Yeah. But, like, these schools are businesses. And they and they have sort of masters to serve. You know what I mean? Like, Berkeley now, to me, and this will, you know, yeah. and, and I, I, I don't really care. Like, I, hmm. I, I kind of call it for what it is to them. I have friends that work yeah. there. And I'm like, you know, right now we're, we're living in an era of, shows that are contests for people to learn how to be singers. You know, when I was at that school, it was very much a bebop idiom yeah. and, and, you know, very much a jazz school. And now it's like a learn how to make a beat and become a pop star school. And that runs its course. I, I love knowing that while we're in something, that everything runs its course. Some point in time in the next six months or three years... There's going to be a bunch of filthy kids with guitars, and they're, you know what I mean? Like, it could be something, and it's going to be like, well, Berkeley's fucked. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, they're going to have to course correct because no one's going to give a shit about making a, like, a house anthem that's all side chained and auto tuned. It, it, you know, it's, it's always amazing to me to think of, like, what is going to be the thing. That tips, you know, that creates the sea change. Right. What and is there are the always next? little ones, you know. What is the next one? But these schools crack me up because yeah. as much as I love Blue Note, I mean, you don't need you don't need to go to a school to be to be you know to become that. As a matter of fact, it's probably best that you just go and play. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, like. Well, and in terms of finding your sound and your identity or whatever, I think it's uh, almost easier sometimes to yeah. just go and play and like. Yeah. Play. But you know, I I hate to. I hate to discount, and you know, it's like so hard. Everybody's working to do, to play music. It's so hard to discount. But I, I, I totally agree with you mm. that I think you should go and be around your peers. Be around exactly. And it's a screwed up time of your life. It's an emotional time of your That's life. Right. Everyone, you know, college is just that period of time. You know, it's it. You better think of something real quick. So, but the fact that there's that these are. For really for-profit institutions oh, is a crazy thing. Massively for You know, Berkeley costs... I mean, I, I only know... I can yeah. speak to Berkeley. The fact that it costs the same as Harvard... Yeah. I mean, it really does. There's no... There's no... Yeah. They can't, you know, defend that. They can't... And the last time I checked, when you leave Harvard, you generally... <laughs> 
You no can't mask. really get a gig that's commensurate with what you just paid. And when you leave Berkeley, you're going into nothing. Yeah. You want to rise with that. Yeah. Yeah. I always called, you know, uh, I always, I always refer to your diploma as a receipt. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> Here's your receipt. Yeah. And yes, yeah, true. And, and listen, and you just said this, like, I am not bashing them. I am yeah. calling bullshit on a structure that, you know, it's an economy that it doesn't produce what you're paying into it for. It doesn't. Yeah. It can't. It's not this, our life, what we do, it's not really, it's not based on that. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you were in school, did you also study real things? I, <laughs> right, right, yeah. no, I, as as matter, people might say. As a matter of fact, I, um, I mean, that's probably why I was giving you the look when you dropped out, of, telling me that you dropped out of high school to go. Oh. Because I, I didn't have a backup plan as such, but I also mm. didn't study music. I went to school for history and Spanish. So, because yeah. my thinking was, if I'm going to be out of work, let me be out of work with this uh, diploma yeah. as opposed to with a music degree. I didn't think that wisely, and and I wasn't course corrected to right. think that wisely exactly. about a plan. It wasn't really my old man was purely bebop in that sense, um, but that's smart because you got that. Yeah, and I know yeah. I have it. I mean, I hope. I yeah. Hope. At this point, I don't know what because I'm so, so far down the line, only doing music that it's like, well, yeah, but you have it. Really mean, but I have it. Yeah, yeah, and it means something because your life experience leading up to you know it, um, it enriches you, whatever. But yeah. you know, I think um, I think that that's a big part of the the question is like now we have all these and some great, really great musicians also coming out of these schools. I mean, beautifully uh, yeah. trained, wonderful. I I have a friend who got his uh, graduate degree at Manhattan School of Music and. It, hooked up his playing. I mean, the two years that he lived yeah, in New York, he came blossomed. so... But he also came out after two years with so much debt, and I remember saying to him, no matter how good you play, and even how good a teacher you are, explain to me the circumstances in which yeah. you pay off that money by playing jazz piano. Yeah. Here's the other thing. Who's to say that that level of playing, of living in two years, and dedicating yourself to yeah. playing, wouldn't have happened anyway? I'm, I, yeah, I'm just, you're in New York. Yeah. You are surrounded by some of the best musicians on the planet. You know? Yeah. I don't know. One could argue that, like, you know, You hey, come and get it yourself. I'm going to do this. Like, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing because that's all about the dedication and work and focus and the classes and everything. I get it. You're going to learn, yeah. you know, a ton. But, yeah, you're right. He's, you know, when you incur, is that the word incur yeah. or, or bring on? The kind of debt that like a doctor has brought on, you know, or, or you know, exactly. a, a, a someone that will eventually that be a doctor. Except then you go out and make hundred fifty dollars on a good gig. Wow, they pay hundred fifty now. Holy shit! I thought they paid like seventy five. That's one really funny thing Charlie always talks about. He's like, the gig still pays the, the same, same as it did in in ninety three or you know eighty six. Yeah. You know, it's like. Well, my what? dad was saying sixty bucks in in the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. In the 60s, 50, 50 and 60 so bucks. So you're, you're basically now, that 60 bucks now is like 17 bucks. Yeah. Hooray. Yeah. It's, you know, but the, but the thing is, listen, I think music always finds a way. Like, I'm not worried about a single fucking thing. Like, I, ba-da, you know, like, that's great. Um, yeah, I don't really worry about it. Like, and it's not my job to worry about. I, you know, sorry, I got other fish to fry. You know, like, um, but it would be interesting to see. I, I do kind of 
really, really cheer for the times where, like, we're not listening to, like, you know, like, I'm getting sick of that. And I, I was drawn to that. Like, that was my world. So for that, for, for electronic music to now be this, like, branded EDM, like, to me, everything sounds like records that were made in the mid nineties, they're just hyped up now. Yeah. There's no real difference. The songwriting, every you know, it's just like so it's interesting. I you know, you remember when there was a time where all the all the big pop songwriters moved to Nashville because mm-hmm. their their thing was starting to fall apart. Sure. So then country so then that completely I hate to say it, ruined country music. Mm-hmm. So all this this great thing that was truly an American thing became like, you know, Basically, someone that should be writing a song for Whitney Houston was writing it for XYZ country artist. You know, and it just, you know, so it's just interesting. You know, it's like a balloon. You squeeze yeah. certain parts of our business and it, you know, it, it pops up somewhere other else. Parts, yeah. You know, my brother Michael, the guy in furniture, is this huge country fan. And he's like, I don't listen to anything past this point, or And if I do, it's these three artists because they're still real. It's like, holy shit, what happened? What happened? But I think that happens in, in, in the sort of jazz world, too. People don't want to hear anything after 1972 or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I hear it. I, I totally agree. So where are we, Matt? Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, we are. We, we <laughs> what are we are, doing? Lord Buckley once said, said, here we jolly well are, right. aren't we? Yes. Yeah, man. So the coolest thing about this is that this, this episode, yes. in a perfect scenario, yeah. will be the third story v- versus... Compared we're gonna have to what podcast? They should actually be if we could be the same, the same file. If we could Let's do, do that, I don't know that there's. T- I didn't say anything that I asked to be struck from the record. No, I didn't either. <laughs> Fuck Berkeley. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Let's coordinate, sorta. man. We got it. So we got uh, to So so. All right. This is what I'm gonna say. Okay. And now we're you know. So what do you, you want to wrap up? Because then I want to say like the you know what I want what we should do, and yeah. I don't think they need to hear this shit. But. Uh, well, Adam, thank you so much. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> I didn't get to thank you. I didn't get to thank you.